Section 28 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 28. Little Louise Roque, Part 2. The magistrate, the mayor, the captain, and the doctor set to work searching in pairs, putting aside the smallest branch along the water. Renardet said to the judge, How does it happen that this wretch was concealed or carried away the clothes, and has thus left the body exposed in sight of everyone? The other, crafty and sagacious, answered, Ha ha, perhaps a dodge? This crime has been committed either by a brute or by a sly scoundrel. In any case, we'll easily succeed in finding him. The noise of wheels made them turn their heads round. It was the deputy magistrate, the doctor, and the registrar of the court who had arrived in their turn. They resumed their search, all chatting in an animated fashion. Renardet said suddenly, Do you know that you are to take luncheon with me? Everyone smilingly accepted the invitation, and the magistrate, thinking that the case of little Louise Roque had occupied enough attention for one day, turned toward the mayor. "'I can have the body brought to your house, can I not? You have a room in which you can keep it for me till this evening?' The other became confused and stammered, "'Yes, no, no. To tell the truth, I prefer that it should not come into my house on account of, uh, on account of my servants, who are already talking about ghosts in, in my tower, the fox's tower.' You know, I could no longer keep a single one. No, I preferred not to have it in my house. The magistrate began to smile. Good, I will have it taken at once to Wally for the legal examination. And turning to his deputy, he said, I can make use of your trap, can I not? Yes, certainly. They all came back to the place where the corpse lay. Mother La Roque, now seated beside her daughter, was holding her hand and staring right before her with a wandering, listless eye. The two doctors endeavored to lead her away so that she might not witness the dead girl's removal, but she understood at once what they wanted to do, and, flinging herself on the body, she threw both arms round it. Lying on top of the corpse, she exclaimed, "'You shall not have it. It's mine. It's mine now. They have killed her for me, and I want to keep her. You shall not have her.' All the men, affected and not knowing how to act, remained standing around her. Renardet fell on his knees and said to her, "'Listen, La Roque, it is necessary, in order to find out who killed her.' Without this, we could not find out. We must make a search for the man in order to punish him. When we have found him, we'll give her up to you. I promise you this. This explanation bewildered the woman, and a feeling of hatred manifested itself in her distracted glance. So then they'll arrest him? Yes, I promise you that. She rose up, deciding to let them do as they liked. But when the captain remarked, It is surprising that her clothes were not found. A new idea, which she had not previously thought of, abruptly entered her mind, and she asked, where are her clothes? They're mine. I want them. Where have they been put? They explained to her that they had not been found. Then she demanded them persistently, crying and moaning. They're mine. I want them. Where are they? I want them. The more they tried to calm her, the more she sobbed and persisted in her demands. She no longer wanted the body. She insisted on having the clothes, as much perhaps through the unconscious cupidity of a wretched being to whom a piece of silver represents a fortune as through maternal tenderness and when the little body, rolled up in blankets which had been brought out from Renardet's house, had disappeared into the vehicle, the old woman standing under the trees, sustained by the mare and the captain, exclaimed, I have nothing, nothing, nothing in the world, not even her little cap, her little cap. The cure, a young priest, had just arrived. He took it on himself to accompany the mother, and they went away together toward the village. The mother's grief was modified by the sugary words of the clergyman, who promised her a thousand compensations, but she kept repeating, If only I had her little cap. This idea now dominated every other. Renardet called from the distance. You will lunch with us, Monsieur l'Abbé, in an hour's time. The priest turned his head round and replied, With pleasure, Monsieur le maire. I'll be with you at twelve. 
and they all directed their steps toward the house, whose gray front, with the large tower built on the edge of the Brindia, could be seen through the branches. The meal lasted a long time. They talked about the crime. Everybody was of the same opinion. It had been committed by some tramp passing there by mere chance while the little girl was bathing. Then the magistrates returned to Rui, announcing that they would return next day at an early hour. The doctor and the cure went to their respective homes, while Renardet, after a long walk through the meadows, returned to the wood, where he remained walking till nightfall with slow steps, his hands behind his back. He went to bed early and was still asleep next morning when the magistrate entered his room. He was rubbing his hands together with a self-satisfied air. Ha ha, you're still sleeping. Well, my dear fellow, we have news this morning. The mayor sat up in his bed. What, pray? Oh, something strange. You remember well how the mother clamored yesterday for some memento of her daughter, especially her little cap? Well, on opening her door this morning, she found on the threshold her child's two little wooden shoes. This proves that the crime was perpetrated by someone from the district, someone who felt pity for her. Besides, the postman, Mederic, brought me the thimble, the knife, and the needle case of the dead girl. So then, the man carrying off the clothes to hide them must have let fall the articles which were in the pocket. As for me, I attach special importance to the wooden shoes, as they indicate a certain moral culture and a faculty for tenderness on the part of the assassin. We will, therefore, if you have no objection, go over together the principal inhabitants of your district. The mayor got up. He rang for his shaving water and said, With pleasure, but it will take some time and we may begin at once. Monsieur Poutouin sat astride a chair. Renardet covered his chin with a white lather while he looked at himself in the glass. Then he sharpened his razor on the strop and continued. The principal inhabitant of Carvalon bears the name of Joseph Renardet, mayor, a rich landowner, a rough man who beats guards and coachmen. The examining magistrate burst out laughing. That's enough. Let us pass on to the next. The second in importance is Peladon, his deputy, a cattle breeder, an equally rich landowner, a crafty peasant, very sly, very close-fisted on every question of money, but incapable, in my opinion, of having perpetrated such a crime. Continue, said Monsieur Poutouin. Renardet, while proceeding with his toilet, reviewed the characters of all the inhabitants of Carvalon. After two hours' discussion, their suspicions were fixed on three individuals who had hitherto borne a shady reputation. A poacher named Cavai, a fisher named Paquet, who caught trout and crabs, and a cattle driver named Clovis. The search for the perpetrator of the crime lasted all summer, but he was not discovered. Those who were suspected and arrested easily proved their innocence, and the authorities were compelled to abandon the attempt to capture the criminal. But this murder seemed to have moved the entire country in a singular manner. There remained in everyone's mind a disquietude, a vague fear, a sensation of mysterious terror, springing not merely from the impossibility of discovering any trace of the assassin, but also and above all from that strange finding of the wooden shoes in front of La Roque's door the day after the crime. The certainty that the murderer had assisted at the investigation, that he was still, doubtless, living in the village, possessed all minds and seemed to brood over the neighborhood like a constant menace. The wood had also become a dreaded spot, a place to be avoided, and supposed to be haunted. Formerly, the inhabitants went there to spend every Sunday afternoon. They used to sit down on the moss at the feet of the huge tall trees, or walk along the water's edge, watching the trout gliding among the weeds. The boys used to play bowls, hide-and-seek, and other games where the ground had been cleared and leveled, and the girls, in rows of four or five, would trip along, holding one another by the arms and screaming songs with their shrill voices. Now nobody ventured there, for fear of finding some corpse lying on the ground. Autumn arrived, and the leaves began to fall from the tall trees, whirling round and round to the ground, and the sky could be seen through the bare branches. Sometimes, when a gust of wind swept over the treetops, the slow, continuous rain suddenly grew heavier, and became a rough storm that covered the moss with a thick yellow carpet that made a kind of creaking sound beneath one's feet. 
and the sound of the falling leaves seemed like a wail, and the leaves themselves like tears shed by these great sorrowful trees that wept in the silence of the bare and empty wood, this dreaded and deserted wood where wandered lonely the soul, the little soul, of little Louise Roque. The Brindia, swollen by storms, rushed on more quickly, yellow and angry between its dry banks, bordered by two thin, bare willow hedges. And here was Renardet suddenly resuming his walks under the trees. Every day at sunset he came out of his house, descended the front steps slowly, and entered the wood in a dreamy fashion, with his hands in his pockets, and paced over the damp soft moss, while a legion of rooks from all the neighboring haunts came thither to rest in the tall trees, and then flew off like a black cloud, uttering loud discordant cries. Night came on, and Renardet was still strolling slowly under the trees. Then, when the darkness prevented him from walking any longer, he would go back to the house and sink into his armchair in front of the glowing hearth, stretching his damp feet toward the fire. One morning, an important bit of news was circulated through the district. The mayor was having his wood cut down. Twenty woodcutters were already at work. They had commenced at the corner nearest to the house and worked rapidly in the master's presence. And each day the wood grew thinner, losing its trees, which fell down one by one as an army loses its soldiers. Renardet no longer walked up and down. He remained from morning till night, contemplating, motionless, with his hands behind his back, the slow destruction of his wood. When a tree fell, he placed his foot on it, as if it were a corpse. Then he raised his eyes to the next with a kind of secret, calm impatience, as if he expected, hoped for something at the end of this slaughter. Meanwhile, they were approaching the place where little Louise Roque had been found. They came to it one evening in the twilight. As it was dark, the sky being overcast, the woodcutters wanted to stop their work, putting off till next day the fall of an enormous beech tree. But the mayor objected to this, and insisted that they should at once lop and cut down this giant, which had sheltered the crime. When the lopper had laid it bare, and the woodcutters had sapped its base, five men commenced hauling at the rope attached to the top. The tree resisted. Its powerful trunk, although notched to the center, was as rigid as iron. The workmen, altogether, with a sort of simultaneous motion, strained at the rope, bending backward and uttering a cry which timed and regulated their efforts. Two woodcutters standing close to the giant remained with axes in their grip, like two executioners ready to strike once more, and Renardet, motionless, with his hand on the trunk, awaited the fall with an uneasy, nervous feeling. One of the men said to him, "'You are too near, Monsieur Le Maire. When it falls, it may hurt you.' He did not reply and did not move away. He seemed ready to catch the beech tree in his open arms and to cast it on the ground like a wrestler. All at once, at the base of the tall column of wood, there was a rent which seemed to run to the top like a painful shock. It bent slightly, ready to fall, but still resisting. The men, in a state of excitement, stiffened their arms, renewed their efforts with greater vigor, and, just as the tree came crashing down, Renardet suddenly made a forward step, then stopped, his shoulders raised to receive the irresistible shock, the mortal shock which would crush him to the earth. But the beech tree, having deviated a little, only rubbed against his loins, throwing him on his face five meters away. The workman dashed forward to lift him up. He had already arisen to his knees, stupefied, with bewildered eyes, and passing his hand across his forehead, as if he were awaking from an attack of madness. When he had got to his feet once more, the men, astonished, questioned him, not being able to understand what he had done. He replied in faltering tones that he had been dazed for a moment, or rather, he had been thinking of his childhood days that he thought he would have time to run under the tree, just as street boys rush in front of vehicles driving rapidly past, that he had played at danger, that for the past eight days he felt this desire growing stronger within him, asking himself each time a tree began to fall whether he could pass underneath it without being touched. It was a piece of stupidity, he confessed, but everyone has these moments of insanity and temptations to boyish folly. He made this explanation in a slow tone, searching for his words, and speaking in a colorless tone. Then he went off, saying, 
Till tomorrow, my friends, till tomorrow. As soon as he got back to his room, he sat down at his table, which his lamp lighted up brightly, and, burying his head in his hands, he began to cry. He remained thus for a long time, then wiped his eyes, raised his head, and looked at the clock. It was not yet six o'clock. He thought, I have time before dinner. And he went to the door and locked it. He then came back, and sitting down at his table, pulled out the middle drawer. Taking from it a revolver, he laid it down on his papers in full view. The barrel of the firearm glittered, giving out gleams of light. Renardet gazed at it for some time with the uneasy glance of a drunken man. Then he rose and began to pace up and down the room. He walked from one end of the apartment to the other, stopping from time to time, only to pace up and down again a moment afterward. Suddenly, he opened the door of his dressing room, steeped a towel in the water pitcher, and moistened his forehead, as he had done on the morning of the crime. Then he began walking up and down again. Each time he passed the table, the gleaming revolver attracted his glance, tempted his hand, but he kept watching the clock and reflected, I still have time. It struck half-past six. Then he took up the revolver, opened his mouth wide with a frightful grimace, and struck the barrel into it, as if he wanted to swallow it. He remained in this position for some seconds without moving, his finger on the trigger. Then, suddenly seized with a shudder of horror, he dropped the pistol on the carpet. He fell back on his armchair, sobbing. I cannot. I dare not. My God, my God, how could I have the courage to kill myself? There was a knock at the door. He rose up, bewildered. A servant said, Monsieur's dinner is ready. He replied, All right, I'm coming down. Then he picked up the revolver, locked it up again in the drawer, and looked at himself in the mirror over the mantelpiece to see whether his face did not look too much troubled. It was red as usual, a little redder, perhaps. That was all. He went down and seated himself at the table. He ate slowly, like a man who wants to prolong the meal, who does not want to be alone. Then he smoked several pipes in the hall while the table was being cleared. After that, he went back to his room. As soon as he had locked himself in, he looked under the bed, opened all the closets, explored every corner, rummaged through all the furniture. Then he lighted the candles on the mantelpiece, and, turning round several times, ran his eye all over the apartment with an anguish of terror that distorted his face, for he knew well that he would see her, as he did every night, little Louise Roque, the little girl he had attacked, and afterwards strangled. Every night the odious vision came back again. First he seemed to hear a kind of roaring sound, such as is made by a threshing machine or the distant passage of a train over a bridge. Then he commenced to gasp, to suffocate, and he had to unbutton his collar and his belt. He moved about to make his blood circulate. He tried to read. He attempted to sing. It was in vain. His thoughts, in spite of himself, went back to the day of the murder and made him begin it all over again, in its most secret details, with all the violent emotions he had experienced from the first minute to the last. He had felt on rising that morning, the morning of the horrible day, a little dizziness and a headache, which he attributed to the heat, so that he remained in his room until breakfast time. After the meal, he had taken a siesta. Then, toward the close of the afternoon, he had gone out to breathe the fresh, soothing breeze under the trees in the wood. But as soon as he was outside, the heavy, scorching air of the plain oppressed him still more. The sun, still high in the heavens, poured down on the parched soil waves of the burning light. Not a breath of wind stirred the leaves. Every beast and bird, even the grasshoppers, were silent. Renardet reached the tall trees and began to walk over the moss where the brindia produced a slight freshness of the air beneath the immense roof of branches. But he felt ill at ease. It seemed to him that an unknown invisible hand was strangling him, and he scarcely thought of anything, having usually few ideas in his head. For the last three months only one thought haunted him, the thought of marrying again. He suffered from living alone, suffered from it morally and physically. Accustomed for ten years past to feeling a woman near him, habituated to her presence every moment, he had need, an imperious and perplexing need of such association. 
Since Madame Renardet's death, he had suffered continually without knowing why. He had suffered at not feeling her dress brushing past him, and above all, from no longer being able to calm and rest himself in her arms. He had been scarcely six months a widower, and he was already looking about in the district for some young girl or some widow he might marry when this period of mourning was ended. He had a chaste soul, but it was lodged in a powerful Herculean body, and carnal imaginings began to disturb his sleep and his vigils. He drove them away, they came back again, and he murmured from time to time, smiling at himself, "'Here I am like St. Anthony.' Having this special morning had several of these visions, the desire suddenly came into his breast to bathe in the Brindia in order to refresh himself and cool his blood. He knew of a large, deep pool, a little farther down, where the people of the neighborhood came sometimes to take a dip in the summer. He went there. Thick willow trees hid this clear body of water where the current rested and went to sleep for a while before starting on its way again. Renardet, as he appeared, thought he heard a light sound, a faint splashing which was not that of the stream on the banks. He softly put aside the leaves and looked. A little girl, quite naked in the transparent water, was beating the water with both hands, dancing about in it and dipping herself with pretty movements. She was not a child, nor was she yet a woman. She was plump and developed, while preserving an air of youthful precocity, as of one who had grown rapidly. He no longer moved, overcome with surprise, with desire, holding his breath with a strange, poignant emotion. He remained there, his heart beating as if one of his sensuous dreams had just been realized, as if an impure fairy had conjured up before him this young creature, this little rustic Venus, rising from the eddies of the stream, as the real Venus rose from the waves of the sea. Suddenly the little girl came out of the water, and, without seeing him, came over to where he stood, looking for her clothes in order to dress herself. As she approached gingerly, on account of the sharp-pointed stones, he felt himself pushed toward her by an irresistible force, by a bestial transport of passion which stirred his flesh, bewildered his mind, and made him tremble from head to foot. She remained standing some seconds behind the willow tree which concealed him from view. Then, losing his reason entirely, he pushed aside the branches, rushed on her, and seized her in his arms. She fell, too terrified to offer any resistance, too terror-stricken to cry out. He seemed possessed, not understanding what he was doing. He woke from his crime as one wakes from a nightmare. The child burst out weeping. "'Hold your tongue! Hold your tongue!' he said. "'I'll give you money!' But she did not hear him and went on sobbing. "'Come on now, hold your tongue. Do hold your tongue. Keep quiet,' he continued. She kept shrieking as she tried to free herself. He suddenly realized that he was ruined, and he caught her by the neck to stop her mouth from uttering these heart-rending dreadful screams. As she continued to struggle with the desperate strength of a being who was seeking to fly from death, he pressed his enormous hands on the little throat swollen with screaming, and in a few seconds he had strangled her, so furiously did he grip her. He had not intended to kill her, but only to make her keep quiet.' Then he stood up, overwhelmed with horror. She lay before him, her face bleeding and blackened. He was about to rush away when there sprang up, in his agitated soul, the mysterious and undefined instinct that guides all beings in the hour of danger. He was going to throw the body into the water, but another impulse drove him toward the clothes, which he made into a small package. Then, as he had a piece of twine in his pocket, he tied it up and hid it in a deep portion of the stream, beneath the trunk of a tree that overhung the brindia. Then he went off at a rapid pace, reached the meadows, took a wide turn in order to show himself to some peasants who dwelt some distance away at the opposite side of the district, and came back to dine at the usual hour, telling the servants all that was supposed to have happened during his walk. He slept, however, that night. He slept with a heavy, brutish sleep, like the sleep of certain persons condemned to death. He did not open his eyes until the first glimmer of dawn, and he waited till his usual hour for riding, so as to excite no suspicion. Then he had to be present at the inquiry as to the cause of death. He did so like a somnambulist, 
in a kind of vision which showed him men and things as in a dream, in a cloud of intoxication, with that sense of unreality which perplexes the mind at the time of the greatest catastrophes. But the agonized cry of Mother Roke pierced his heart. At that moment he had felt inclined to cast himself at the old woman's feet and to exclaim, I am the guilty one. But he had restrained himself. He went back, however, during the night to fish up the dead girl's wooden shoes in order to place them on her mother's threshold. As long as the inquiry lasted, as long as it was necessary to lead justice astray, he was calm, master of himself, crafty and smiling. He discussed quietly with the magistrates all the suppositions that passed through their minds, combated their opinions, and demolished their arguments. He even took a keen and mournful pleasure in disturbing their investigations, in embroiling their ideas, in showing the innocence of those whom they suspected. But as soon as the inquiry was abandoned, he became generally nervous, more excitable than he had been before, although he mastered his irritability. Sudden noises made him start with fear. He shuddered at the slightest thing and trembled sometimes from head to foot when a fly alighted on his forehead. Then he was seized with an imperious desire for motion, which impelled him to take long walks and to remain up whole nights pacing up and down his room. It was not that he was goaded by remorse. His brutal nature did not lend itself to any shade of sentiment or of moral terror. A man of energy and even of violence, born to make war, to ravage conquered countries and to massacre the vanquished, full of the savage instincts of the hunter and the fighter, he scarcely took count of human life. Though he respected the church outwardly from policy, he believed neither in God nor in the devil, expecting neither chastisement nor recompense for his acts in another life. His sole belief was a vague philosophy drawn from all the ideas of the encyclopedists of the last century, and he regarded religion as a moral sanction of the law, the one and the other having been invented by men to regulate social relations. To kill anyone in a duel, or in war, or in a quarrel, or by accident, or for the sake of revenge, or even through bravado, would have seemed to him an amusing and clever thing, and would not have left more impression on his mind than a shot fired at a hare, but he had experienced a profound emotion at the murder of a child. He had, in the first place, perpetrated it in the heat of an irresistible gust of passion, in a sort of tempest of the senses that had overpowered his reason, and he had cherished in his heart, in his flesh, on his lips, even to the very tips of his murderous fingers a kind of bestial love, as well as a feeling of terrified horror, towards this little girl surprised by him and basely killed. Every moment his thoughts returned to that horrible scene, and, though he endeavored to drive this picture from his mind, though he put it aside with terror, with disgust, he felt it surging through his soul, moving about in him, waiting incessantly for the moment to reappear. Then, as evening approached, he was afraid of the shadow falling around him. He did not yet know why the darkness seemed frightful to him, but he instinctively feared it, and he felt that it was peopled with terrors. The bright daylight did not lend itself to fears. Things and beings were visible then, and only natural things and beings could exhibit themselves in the light of day. But the night, the impenetrable night, thicker than walls and empty, the infinite night, so black, so vast, in which one might brush against frightful things, the night when one feels that a mysterious terror is wandering, prowling about, appeared to him to conceal an unknown threatening danger close beside him. What was it? He knew ere long. As he sat in his armchair, rather late one evening when he could not sleep, he thought he saw the curtain of the window move. He waited uneasily with beating heart. The drapery did not stir. Then all of a sudden, it moved once more. He did not venture to rise. He no longer ventured to breathe, and yet he was brave. He had often fought, and he would have liked to catch thieves in his house. Was it true that this curtain did move? He asked himself, fearing that his eyes had deceived him. It was, moreover, such a slight thing, a gentle flutter of drapery, a kind of trembling in its folds, less than an undulation caused by the wind. Renardet sat still, with staring eyes and outstretched neck. He sprang to his feet abruptly, ashamed of his fear, took four steps, seized the drapery with both hands, and pulled it wide apart. 
At first he saw nothing but darkened glass, resembling plates of glittering ink. The night, the vast impenetrable night, stretched far beyond, as far as the invisible horizon. He remained standing in front of this illimitable shadow, and suddenly he perceived a light, a moving light, which seemed some distance away. Then he put his face close to the window pane, thinking that a person looking for crabs might be poaching in the Brindia, for it was past midnight, and this light rose up at the edge of the stream under the trees. He was not able to see clearly, so Renardet placed his hands over his eyes, and suddenly this light became an illumination, and he beheld little Louise Roque naked and bleeding on the moss. He recoiled, frozen with horror, knocked over his chair and fell over on his back. He remained there some minutes in anguish of mind. Then he sat up and began to reflect. He had had a hallucination. That was all. A hallucination due to the fact that a night marauder was walking with a lantern in his hand near the water's edge. What was there astonishing, besides, in the circumstance of that recollection of his crime that should sometimes bring before him a vision of the dead girl? He rose from the ground, swallowed a glass of wine, and sat down again. He was thinking, what am I to do if this occurs again? And it would occur, he felt. It was sure of it. Already his glance was drawn toward the window. It called him. It attracted him. In order to avoid looking at it, he turned his chair round. Then he took a book and tried to read, but it seemed to him that he presently heard something stirring behind him, and he swung around his armchair on one foot. The curtain was moving again. Unquestionably, it moved this time. He could no longer have any doubt about it. He rushed forward and grasped it so violently that he pulled it down with the pole. Then he eagerly glued his face to the glass. He saw nothing. All was black outside, and he breathed with the joy of a man whose life has just been saved. Then he went back to his chair and sat down again but almost immediately he felt a longing to look out once more through the window. Since the curtain had fallen down, the window made a sort of gap, fascinating and terrible, on the dark landscape. In order not to yield to this dangerous temptation, he undressed, blew out the light, and closed his eyes. Lying on his back motionless, his skin warm and moist, he awaited sleep. Suddenly a great gleam of light flashed across his eyelids. He opened them, believing that his dwelling was on fire. All was black as before, and he leaned on his elbow to try to distinguish the window, which had still for him an inconquerable attraction. By dint of straining his eyes, he could perceive some stars, and he rose, groped his way across the room, discovered the panes with his outstretched hands, and placed his forehead close to them. There below, under the trees, lay the body of the little girl gleaming like phosphorus, lighting up the surrounding darkness. Renardet uttered a cry and rushed toward his bed, where he lay till morning, his head hidden under the pillow. From that moment his life became intolerable. He passed his days in apprehension of each succeeding night, and each night the vision came back again. As soon as he had locked himself up in his room, he strove to resist it, but in vain. An irresistible force lifted him up and pushed him against the window, as if to call the phantom, and he saw it at once, lying first in the spot where the crime was committed, in the position in which it had been found. Then the dead girl rose up and came toward him with little steps, just as the child had done when she came out of the river. She advanced quietly, passing straight across the grass and over the bed of withered flowers. Then she rose up in the air toward Renardet's window. She came toward him as she had come on the day of the crime, and the man recoiled before the apparition. He retreated to his bed and sank down upon it, knowing well that the little one had entered the room and that she now was standing behind the curtain, which presently moved. And until daybreak, he kept staring at the curtain with a fixed glance, ever waiting to see his victim depart. But she did not show herself any more. She remained there behind the curtain, which quivered tremulously now and then. And Renardet, his fingers clutching the clothes, squeezed them as he had squeezed the throat of little Louise Roque. He heard the clock striking the hours, and in the stillness the pendulum kept ticking in time with the loud beating of his heart, and he suffered, the wretched man, more than any man had ever suffered before. Then, as soon as a white streak of light on the ceiling announced the approaching day, he felt himself free, alone at last, alone in his room, and he went to sleep.
he slept several hours a restless feverish sleep in which he retraced in dreams the horrible vision of the past night when he went down to the late breakfast he felt exhausted as after unusual exertion and he scarcely ate anything still haunted as he was by the fear of what he had seen the night before he knew well however that it was not an apparition that the dead do not come back and that his sick soul his soul possessed by one thought alone by an indelible remembrance was the only cause of his torture was what brought the dead girl back to life and raised her form before his eyes on which it was ineffaceably imprinted but he knew too that there was no cure that he would never escape from the savage persecution of his memory and he resolved to die rather than to endure these tortures any longer then he thought of how he would kill himself it must be something simple and natural which would preclude the idea of suicide for he clung to his reputation to the name bequeathed him by his ancestors and if his death awakened any suspicion people's thoughts might be perhaps directed toward the mysterious crime toward the murderer who could not be found and they would not hesitate to accuse him a strange idea came into his head that of allowing himself to be crushed by the tree at the foot of which he had assassinated little louise roque so he determined to have the wood cut down and to simulate an accident but the beech tree refused to crush his ribs returning to his house a prey to utter despair he had snatched up his revolver and then did not dare to fire it the dinner bell summoned him he could eat nothing and he went upstairs again as he did not know what to do now that he had escaped the first time he felt himself a coward presently he would be ready brave decided master of his courage and of his resolution now he was weak and feared death as much as he did the dead girl he faltered i dare not venture it again i dare not venture it then he glanced with terror first at the revolver on the table and next at the curtain which hid his window it seemed to him moreover that something horrible would occur as soon as his life was ended something what a meeting with her perhaps she was waiting for him she was waiting for him she was calling him and it was in order to seize him in her turn to draw him toward the doom that would avenge her and to lead him to die that she appeared every night he began to cry like a child repeating i will not venture it again i will not venture it then he fell on his knees and murmured my god my god without believing nevertheless in god and he no longer dared in fact to look at his window where he knew the apparition was hiding nor at his table where his revolver gleamed when he had risen up he said this cannot last there must be an end of it the sound of his voice in the silent room made a chill of fear pass through his limbs but as he could not bring himself to come to a determination as he felt certain that his finger would always refuse to pull the trigger of his revolver he turned round to hide his head under the bedclothes and began to reflect he would have to find some way in which he could force himself to die to play some trick on himself which would not permit of any hesitation on his part of any delay any possible regrets he envied condemned criminals who are led to the scaffold surrounded by soldiers oh if he could only beg of someone to shoot him if after confessing his crime to a true friend who would never divulge it he could procure death at his hand but from whom could he ask this terrible service from whom he thought of all the people he knew the doctor no he would talk about it afterward most probably and suddenly the fantastic idea entered his mind he would write to the magistrate who was on terms of close friendship with him and would denounce himself as the perpetrator of the crime he would in this letter confess everything revealing how his soul had been tortured how he had resolved to die how he had hesitated about carrying out his resolution and what means he had employed to strengthen his failing courage and in the name of their old friendship he would implore of the other to destroy the letter as soon as he had ascertained that the culprit had inflicted justice on himself renardet could rely on this magistrate he knew him to be true discreet and capable of even an idle word he was one of those men who have an inflexible conscience governed directed regulated by their reason alone scarcely had he formed this project when a strange feeling of joy took possession of his heart he was calm now 
He would write his letter slowly, then at daybreak he would deposit it in the box nailed to the outside wall of his office. Then he would ascend his tower to watch for the postman's arrival, and when the man in the blue blouse had gone away, he would cast himself head foremost on the rocks on which the foundations rested. He would take care to be seen first by the workmen who had cut down his wood. He would climb to the projecting stone which bore this flagstaff displayed on festivals. He would smash this pole with a shake and carry it along with him as he fell. Who would suspect that it was not an accident, and he would be killed outright owing to his weight and the height of the tower? Presently he got out of bed, went over to the table, and began to write. He omitted nothing, not a single detail of the crime, not a single detail of the torments of his heart, and he ended by announcing that he had passed sentence on himself, that he was going to execute the criminal, and begged his friend, his old friend, to be careful that there should never be any stain on his memory. When he had finished this letter, he saw that the day had dawned. He closed, sealed it, and wrote the address. Then he descended with light steps, hurried toward the little white box fastened to the outside wall in the corner of the farmhouse, and when he had thrown into it this letter, which made his hand tremble, he came back quickly, drew the bolts of the great door, and climbed up to his tower to wait for the passing of the postman, who was to bear away his death sentence. He felt self-possessed now, liberated, saved. A cold dry wind, an icy wind, passed across his face. He inhaled it eagerly with open mouth, drinking in its chilling kiss. The sky was red, a wintry red, and all the plain, whitened with frost, glistened under the first rays of the sun, as if it were covered with powdered glass. Renardet, standing up, his head bare, gazed at the vast tract of country before him, the meadows to the left and to the right of the village, whose chimneys were beginning to smoke in preparation for the morning meal. At his feet he saw the Bredia flowing amid the rocks, where he would soon be crushed to death. He felt new life on that beautiful, frosty morning. The light bathed him, entered his being like a newborn hope. A thousand recollections assailed him, recollections of similar mornings, of rapid walks on the hard earth which rang beneath his footsteps, of happy days of shooting on the edges of pools where wild ducks sleep. All the good things that he loved, the good things of existence, rushed to his memory, penetrated him with fresh desires, awakened all the vigorous appetites of his active, powerful body. And he was about to die. Why? He was going to kill himself stupidly because he was afraid of a shadow, afraid of nothing. He was still rich and in the prime of life. What folly! All he needed was distraction, absence, a voyage, in order to forget. This night he had not even seen the little girl because his mind was preoccupied and had wandered towards some other subject. Perhaps he would not see her any more? And even if she still haunted him in this house, certainly she would not follow him elsewhere. The earth was wide. The future was long. Why should he die? His glance traveled across the meadows, and he perceived a blue spot in the path which wound alongside the Brindia. It was Mederic coming to bring letters from town and to carry away those of the village. Renardet gave a start, a sensation of pain shot through his breast, and he rushed down the winding staircase to get back his letter, to demand it back from the postman. Little did it matter to him now whether he was seen. He hurried across the grass, damp from the light frost of the previous night, and arrived in front of the box in the corner of the farmhouse exactly the same time as the letter carrier. The latter had opened the little wooden door and drew forth the four papers deposited there by the inhabitants of the locality. Renardet said to him, "'Good morrow, Médéric. "'Good morrow, Monsieur Le Maire. "'I say, Médéric, I threw a letter into the box that I want back again. "'I came to ask you to give it back to me.' "'That's all right, Monsieur Le Maire. "'You'll get it.' And the postman raised his eyes. He stood petrified at the sight of Renardet's face. The mayor's cheeks were purple. His eyes were anxious and sunken, with black circles around them. His hair was unbrushed, his beard untrimmed, his necktie unfastened. It was evident that he had not been in bed. The postman asked, are you ill, Monsieur Le Maire? The other, suddenly comprehending that his appearance must be unusual, lost countenance and faltered. 
Oh, no. Oh, no. Only I jumped out of bed to ask you for this letter. I was asleep. You understand? He said in reply, What letter? The one you're going to give back to me. Mederic now began to hesitate. The mayor's attitude did not strike him as natural. There was perhaps a secret in that letter, a political secret. He knew Renardet was not a Republican, and he knew all the tricks and chicanery employed at elections. He asked, To whom is it addressed, this letter of yours? To Monsieur Poutouin, the magistrate. You know, my friend, Monsieur Poutouin. The postman searched through the papers and found the one asked for. Then he began looking at it, turning it round and round between his fingers, much perplexed, much troubled by the fear of either committing a grave offense or of making an enemy of the mayor. Seeing his hesitation, Renardet made a movement for the purpose of seizing the letter and snatching it away from him. This abrupt action convinced Médéric that some important secret was at stake, and made him resolve to do his duty, cost what it may. So he flung the letter into his bag and fastened it up with the reply, "'No, I can't, Monsieur le maire. As long as it is for the magistrate, I can't.' A dreadful pang wrung Renardet's heart, and he murmured, "'Why, you know me well. You're even able to recognize my handwriting. I tell you, I want that paper.' "'I can't.' "'Look here, Médéric, you know I'm incapable of deceiving you. I tell you, I want it.' "'No, I can't.' A tremor of rage passed through Renardet's soul. "'Damn it all, take care.' You know that I never trifle, and that I could get you out of your job, my good fellow, and without much delay, either. And then, I am the mayor of the district, after all, and I now order you to give me back that paper. The postman answered firmly, No, I can't, Monsieur le maire. Thereupon, Renardet, losing his head, caught hold of the postman's arms in order to take away his bag. But, freeing himself by a strong effort and springing backward, the letter carrier raised his big holly stick. Without losing his temper, he said emphatically, don't touch me, Monsieur le maire, or I'll strike. Take care, I'm only doing my duty. Feeling that he was lost, Renardet suddenly became humble, gentle, appealing to him like a whimpering child. Look here, look here, my friend. Give me back that letter and I'll recompense you. I'll give you money. Stop, stop, I'll give you a hundred francs, you understand? A hundred francs! The postman turned on his heel and started on his journey. Renardet followed him, out of breath, stammering, Médéric, Médéric, listen, I'll give you a thousand francs, you understand? A thousand francs. The postman went on without giving any answer. Renardet went on. I'll make your fortune, you understand? Whatever you wish. Fifty thousand francs. Fifty thousand francs for that letter. What does it matter to you? You won't? Well, a hundred thousand, I say. A hundred thousand francs. Do you understand? A hundred thousand francs. A hundred thousand francs. The postman turned back, his face hard, his eyes severe. Enough of this, or else I'll repeat to the magistrate everything you have just said to me. Renardet stopped abruptly. It was all over. He turned back and rushed toward his house, running like a hunted animal. Then in his turn, Médéric stopped and watched his flight with stupefaction. He saw the mayor re-enter his house, and waited still, as if something astonishing were about to happen. In fact, presently the tall form of Renardet appeared on the summit of the fox's tower. He ran around the platform like a madman. Then he seized the flagstaff and shook it furiously without succeeding in breaking it. Then, all of a sudden, like a diver with two hands before him, he plunged into space. Médéric rushed forward to his assistance. He saw the woodcutters going to work and called out to them, telling them an accident had occurred. At the foot of the walls they found a bleeding body, its head crushed on a rock. The Brindilla surrounded this rock, and over its clear, calm waters could be seen a long red thread of mingled brains and blood. End of section 28 Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.